Well, turning your Bibles to page 490, if you're using the Pew Bible, the blue one at the front. And incidentally, it was a, a family from Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church that uh, made the financial provision for us to get these Bibles. So, more ways than one indebted to your folks. Page 490, very end of Esther. Esther chapter 9 and verse 29, and then right to the very end of the book. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace, shalom is the word, and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their, and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of the brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. To which you respond by saying together, Hallelujah and thanks be to God. Our Lord, we can't pray better than we've sung. We ask that you will speak to us now by your word, especially because it is so full of promises. And Esther, among other things, is designed to teach us that you do keep your promises. You keep them perfectly. And so, our Lord, encourage us in those things. Now minister to us by the Holy Spirit. Speak, O Lord, by him, using your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And you'll want to, to turn in your Bibles to the, to the book of Esther, the very end, page 490. I apologize that the page for your notes did not come out in the bulletin this week. Um, but you'll have space in various areas to take notes that you might want. <clears throat> I must admit that I am really saddened to come to the end of the book of, of Esther. It is an absolutely remarkable book you know, when you work. The only other book I think that's impacted me like this is the Gospel of John. Uh, when, when people question whether the Bible is the Word of God, I can be kind of, kind of maybe caustic, I guess, when I said I shouldn't be, but say, have you really read it? Uh, but when you really study the books of the Bible, you see they are... They had to come from far more than uh, mere, mere mortal in involvement. Um, cl clearly, every part of, of the book of Esther, that's why really there have been few doubts about whether it's part of the scriptures. Um, it, it, is just, it, it, re it remarkably draws together truths of the Word of God, and I hope you'll see some of that this morning. But anyway, it's going to be kind of sad to, to end this fascinating book. See, the Old Testament, what is it? What is the Old Testament as you read it? It's thousands and thousands and thousands of, of strands, okay, of, of thread. And all of those things are woven together 
Uh, these threads are threads of promise. And all of these strands are woven together in the beautiful tapestry that we know of as the New Testament. When you're reading the Old Testament, the backside of the tapestry looks a mess, and that's sometimes the way you feel when you're reading the Old Testament. But then as you come to the New Testament and turn it over, you see how the beautiful picture of Christ and the kingdom is so clear there. Well, Esther is very much a part of those threads, and a lot of those threads of the Old Testament, an amazing number of them are present in what is really a very short book. I mean, realistically, it's only about nine chapters, even, we go, even though we go into chapter 10. And remember that, that Esther is among the last of the books of the Old Testament. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, those would be the last of the books of the Old Testament after Israel comes back from the exile. Uh, you could make the case that Esther is in fact the last of the books of the Old Testament written, uh, possibly written even in the, the 400s or the 500 BC. But at any rate, it's very important. It's among the last of the books of the Old Testament and in this among the last of the books the Lord puts in a few other interesting threads that we're going to look at today that are really quite fascinating. Um, and, and remember that, that as, as if you, and I want you to think like the writer of, of Esther, it's as if, I mean, the writer of Esther is, whoever it is, it is it's as if he's looking through one of these micro, uh, telescopes that you see when you're on a, a landscape, and, and there's a chasm. Okay, the chasm like the Grand Canyon, for example, and that chasm is about a 425-year period that we call the intertestamental period. The Old Testament is completed some 425 years before the birth of Christ, and then, of course, the chasm of the intertestamental period. And, and the writer is looking over at the landscape of what we would know of as the New Testament, okay? And, and, and that will help you, I think, get a, get a framework for what we're going to look at in this very end of the book of Esther. Intentionally, it's called Esther, the end, question mark, and we'll let you figure out why, why the question mark is there. So, three themes today as we end up the book of Esther. Number one, some lessons. Some lessons from the, from the book, and that'll be kind of a review. The second is last words, chapter 9 and verse 20, 29 to the end of chapter 10, verse 3, some last words. But then the third point is the last word. This is not the last word, okay? So lessons, last words, and the last words. Five lessons from the book of Esther. As you look over all that we've covered what are the main lessons that we've learned? Number one, the message of no mention of God. That, that's got to be number one. It strikes everyone. God's name isn't even mentioned in this book of the Bible. And yet, as you study it carefully, it's very obvious that it is far more than a mere human creation or formation. It is inspired. It is God-breathed out word of God. And it is the message in Esther of no mention of God. Why is that? Esther emphasizes what we call providence, God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. You may not see that, but God is in back of all of those things. Of him, through him, to him are not some things are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And even Ephesians 1.11, he has ordained all things, all things whatsoever comes to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what Esther is about, or as we've put it, there really are no incidents in life. There's always coincidences in which you are perfectly responsible as Esther was, as Vashti was, as Mordecai was, as Haman was, as Ahasuerus was. And they're not puppets on a stage. And they are fully responsible. But God's in back of every one of those things. And of course, the one text you think of in particular in that, and that night the king could not sleep. 
God has ways of giving us rest. God has ways of keeping us awake. But there's no incidents here. It's only coincidences. So when you're reading about Vashti and the way Vashti refused to come to the king, and Esther, and the beauty that she was. And interestingly, Persian women were noted to be among the most beautiful of the women in the world. And of all these Persian women that the king wanted for his harem, here's this Jewess who is chosen as the most beautiful. That's not an incident, folks. That's a, that's a coincidence. God at work in all of these things. So that, that's message number one. The message of no mention of God, but God's providence is here. And that is so important for our culture. Our culture doesn't mention God. In fact, you could say our culture is a culture in which God is nowhere. But you need to be aware that he is everywhere. He's always at work. And, and so I think that's what makes Esther so pregnant with significance for our culture. For that day, God was not mentioned like our day, but he's everywhere at work. Never forget that. Okay, so that's number one. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, subflooring. Okay, subflooring. What does that mean? There's promises in the same way there's subflooring here in this room, and we walk on it even though you don't see it. There is sub, the subflooring of God's promises to Israel. Okay, now God has promises for all of his people. We're thinking specifically of God's promises to all, to, to Israel here. That's the subflooring in the book of Esther. No specific mention of it, but you wouldn't have Esther and you wouldn't have the results of Esther if it weren't for that subflooring of God's promise. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be with you. So many other similar promises in the Old Testament. Why is that? Remember, there's a Redeemer that's to come into the world. And that Redeemer and that salvation is of the Jews. And because there must be the preservation of the people for that Redeemer to be born, you have these promises that are fulfilled in Esther. And in a real sense, that's probably uh, the main bloodline of this book of Esther. Uh, Not only the promises that God makes to Israel, but how he fulfills them. And here again, um, in the world, the world, folks, doesn't... We have these things, technical word, presuppositions. What's a presupposition? It's a faith commitment that what God has said in his word is true. Let God be found true, though every man found a liar. Now, the world doesn't recognize that. The world doesn't know that. The world doesn't think about that. But subflooring, folks, you don't see it. And so you are to be people who know the subflooring of God's promises, and you live out of those things. Interestingly, There is a hint in there that Mordecai did realize those promises. It's when he says to Esther, "Um, Esther, if you don't do what you need to do in going to the king, this is Pastor Shishko's paraphrase, um, the the Lord has his other ways of preserving his people. So, So there was some awareness of those promises. What I'm saying here for us, let's be aware of those faith commitments, what God has said in his word, even though our culture says nothing about that. Okay, this is number two. Number three, the battle. Genesis 3.15, there's going to be a struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and you see that in this book in very bold relief. The Amalekites are the paragon of the people who oppose God's people right from the time of Israel's constitution as a nation in the book of Exodus. The Amalekites are opposed to God's people. And God says, I'm going to blot out their name. Later, the Amalekites are led by a man named Agag. And there's a king in Israel, and God is going to use that king to blot out the name of the Amalekites, but he doesn't do it. 
And so God removes him from being king, and God, in the book of Esther, through Mordecai and through Esther, he does what Saul did not, and he will see that the name of the Amalekites are blotted out. How? No coincidences. No incidents, only coincidences. Haman is an Agagite, and Haman has taken up his mantle to wipe out the Jews. God says, I'll take up my promise. Whoever curses my people, I will curse. And so that that theme of the battle is very, very much in place here in the book of Esther. And that really is the theme of Scripture. Old Testament, the battle is physical and external in most cases. So you have the Canaanites, you have the Amalekites, you have the Girgashites, you have the Jebusites, you have the Philistines, you have all of these very physical and external enemies that are opposing God's people. Why? God is using that as an object lesson to say, you're in a real battle. Okay, that's why these battles are here. You are in a real battle. Now, in the New Testament, that physical and spiritual an external battle becomes more spiritual by the Holy Spirit and internal. Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, and he gives gospel armor that we put on as we go into real battle. And Paul says we are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in this battle. So it's, it's a different way of waging the battle, uh, but it's still a battle. Why is that? We'll come to it a little bit later. But folks, external battles never win, win real wars. External battles never win real wars. But we'll come back to that. And incidentally, at the last day, and really, the battle leading up to that last day, both will come together. You'll have the physical and the the physical and the external, Gog and Magog, and you'll have the spiritual and the internal, because they're the instruments of the devil. So that, that in itself is a very interesting theme. Okay, so the battle is is number three. Number four, God will fulfill his promises. He not only has them, but he will fulfill his promises. And that's why the very end of Esther, all of, almost all of chapter 9 and chapter 10, hits you in the face with Purim, which isn't even mentioned in the New Testament. But Purim is about the fact that God will fulfill his promises. God made a promise. He will protect his people. He will blot out the name of his opponents. And he will bring, as you read in chapter 9, the language, he will bring them feasting and gladness, a day of gladness and feasting as a holiday. And what's given in verse 22 in chapter 9? Sorrow brought to gladness mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness and for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is the lavish banquet that the Israelites have because they are given rest from their enemies. All right? And, and frankly, this is embedded in the Old Testament, in ways even the other feasts are not. The the, the language in chapter 9 and 10 cements into Israel that this feast of Purim, victory, rest, joy, merriment, peace, this, this is to be part and parcel of Israel's life all year long. If you will, it's a yearly movie trailer of the wonder of what God has provided for his people. And But again, God fulfills his promises. Now, it took a long time, okay? These, these, the promises even to get to the destruction of, of, Ahab, of, of Agag's descendant took hundreds of years. 
But that's part of the lesson too. We want God to work by a microwave. He works by a crockpot, right? Slowly. And then last, but arguably the most important theme in the book of Esther. In fact, arguably it's the most important theme in the whole Bible. Reversal. You see that with Joseph. You meant evil against me, he says to his brothers. But God meant it for good. There was a reversal. And the Bible's about reversals, and those are condensed in so many ways in the book of Esther. Reversals. Queen Vashti to Queen Esther. Reversal. Haman, enemy of the Jews. Mordecai, a Jew. The gallows that were to be for Mordecai and become the gallows for Haman. The scepter that Haman has by which he can bring government in Persia becomes the government that goes to Mordecai. The Israelites who are to be destroyed in a holocaust are able to defend themselves in justice and they do so over and over and over again. These themes of reversal are there. But there's one more and it's at the very end of this book that we'll come to next. Just so you see again, brothers and sisters, that's what makes the Bible, it's a story, it's a true story, it's, it's true down to every syllable of it. And the more you study the Word of God, the more you see how wonderful and glorious it is, okay? You kiss as an elder in this church prior to the haven uh, becoming the occupants here would say, you can't make this up, and you can't make these things up in Esther. Okay. Now, let's look at chapter 9 and verse 29 and chapter 10 to verse 3. Last words, and these are curious things at the very end of this book. You just read Esther, and you come to the end of this, and you scratch your head and say, why, why is this even here? Verse 29, Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, this is the first time this is mentioned, and Mordecai the Jew give full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. And I don't, this is a part of the theme. I don't want to get into it here. But part of the purpose of Esther is to emphasize to the Jews the things of writing. God has things put into words so they will remember them. And, and that's here. But that's not the main point here, though. Notice that Esther is called not only the daughter of Abihail, that's her Jewish descendancy, and Esther is her Persian name. At the end of this book, Esther, we're reminded, is a dual citizen. She is fully a Persian. She is queen to Ahasuerus as the king in Persia, in that empire. But she's also a Jew. And that's emphasized by her lineage being given. Looking ahead, that's true of Christians. You are dual citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, Christ Jesus. Yes, you're citizens of the United States, and we, or in at least one case here of China. <laughs> and uh, so you're citizens of the nation of which you were born, of which you're a part, and never take that lightly. But you're first of all citizens of heaven. So, so Esther's dual citizenship is here. And then in chapter 9 and verse 30, they send these letters. Notice that this is, and here's the reversal. The, the, the letters that were sent out to call for the extermination of the Jews. Now letters are sent out to the 127 provinces, remember, from India over here to Ethiopia over here, the whole Persian Empire, and um, letters are sent to them, um, for, to all the kingdoms of Ahasuerus. And notice the language, we'll come back to it, in words of shalom, fullness of blessing, and truth, which is not just referring to something that is right, but something that's good, okay, over against what was evil. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther 
obligated them, and as they'd obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and here again it was recorded in writing. Here's that final reversal. Now it's, it's given, should the Israelites be attacked, they have every right to protect themselves. And that's confirmed in writing. Now what's interesting is when you read chapter 10 and verse 1, where's Ahasuerus in all this? King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. The more things change, folks, <laughs> the more they remain the same. Because Ahasuerus at this time is getting ready to battle with Greece. And he's going to lose, incidentally, but he's getting ready to battle with Greece. And so what does he do? He raises taxes so he has the money for his munitions for all of that. And, and, uh, um, but that's a trivial thing. It, it, it's, it's kind of a throwaway comment. Why? Because what is most important in here is this edict that we read about in verses 30 to 32, chapter 9, that bring peace and truth throughout the empire. Shalom, fullness of blessing. What is most important is not Ahasuerus doing what leaders do. They tax. That happens all the time. What is important is that God is at work, and through his instruments, he is bringing peace and truth and goodness over against evil into the empire of Persia. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. But it was an administration that was a good one. It was a good administration of, again, goodness and truth and peace. So, so, so just the emphasis here, keep what's important in mind, it's not, if you will, what happens on April 15th. It's what happens on the Lord's Day that's most important in a culture. But I want you to notice something else, threads that are in here. Mordecai wasn't a king. Esther was a queen, to be sure. But Mordecai, who really is the focus of leadership here, he's not a king. And Esther and Mordecai aren't prophets either, as Moses was. Nor are they priests, the way the Levites were. In the entire Old Testament, all the movers and shakers had been prophets and priests and kings. These aren't any of those. Very, very interesting that that's the case. They are commoners who've been exalted they're common people who are consecrated to God. Ahasuerus, or rather Mordecai, wouldn't bow before Haman. He was consecrated to God. Even though he may not have understood a whole lot of what that meant, he was consecrated to God. And when push came to shove, Esther was willing to risk her life for the sake of her people. They were common people consecrated to God. And you'll find out how significant that is in a few minutes. And brothers and sisters, I want to impress upon you, in the kingdom of God, there's no little people. The world's view is the rich, the famous, the strong, the illustrious, the millionaires. That's not the way God works. God delights to take the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And that lesson is taught here in bold, bold relief. The real movers and shakers are people like you. I mentioned this before because I, of my great respect for J.C. Watts, who some years ago, black man, who some years ago was a representative in Colorado, a Christian, and I was impressed with this man. I was impressed with this young man 
in Congress. He was a, an honest man. Well, he was a Christian. He was an honest man. Very fresh thinking. He was just, I mean, everything about him was so impressive. And you could tell he was being groomed for leadership within his party. After two terms in the House of Representatives, you know how many years? That's four years. After two terms, he retires from politics, stuns everybody. And he's blunt and he says, I can get a whole lot more accomplished in the private sector than I can in politics. Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America in the 1840s, noted that as well. But America, America would, would never really be changed by its politicians. It would be changed by people like you who work hard. And J.C. Watts' testimony to this day, he wouldn't go back and do it again in Congress if you gave him a million bucks because he's working with people, with human beings, and seeing them changed. And I want to encourage you that that's the way God works in his kingdom. Whatever else Esther and Mordecai teach us, and there's a lot of things, it's that there's no, no common people, no ordinary people in the kingdom of God, and no little people in the kingdom of God. And then chapter 10 and verses 2 and 3, now Mordecai is front and center. All the acts of his power, and this is referring now to the power that Ahasuerus gave to Mordecai, all the acts of his power and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia, even as we have chronicles of Israel and Judah, they had theirs for their empire. For Mordecai the Jew was second in, second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke shalom, peace, to all of his people. Here's Mordecai, second in command. You've been reading through the Old Testament and you're struck in the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, how Joseph, who had been despised and rejected as Mordecai was by Haman, becomes second in command to Pharaoh. And as you continue to read, Daniel, who was in exile a little before the time Esther was written, Daniel is in exile and he is despised and he is rejected, whether it when he goes into the lion's den, opposed by people. He is second in command to the emperor, the leader of Babylon. And now here is, here is Mordecai, who is second in command to Ahasuerus. And the language that's used here, power and might, that is the full range of political authority. Uh, the, the, the right, the power that he has, the, the right to it, and the actual power to accomplish it. The power and might, full range of authority. And it's the language of a perfectly righteous reign, as imperfect as it was, but the welfare of his people, which means the good of his people. We talk about the common wealth, means the common good. Magistrates are to work for the common good of people, and it's based on this language, and peace, shalom, fullness of blessing. What brings, what brings blessing to the people? But notice, it's for the Jews. It's for his people. Now, all of Persia would have benefited from it. When you have a government that seeks the welfare of some, then everyone will in one way or another benefit. But the language here is pretty clear. It's the welfare of his people. And he spoke peace to all of his people. It was primarily for the Jews. And Esther comes to an end. I suggest that as you come to the end of this book, whoever wrote it, uh, 
is somewhat wistful. Wistful is an interesting word. It means to to kind of feel a longing for something, to feel a yearning for something, to, to not be satisfied with what is here, but to have a, a hankering for something better. And I think in that sense, the writer was wistful. Why? Well, probably when Esther was written, all of these events would have passed. You realize Esther... Esther is about a 20-year period in the empire of Persia and in world history. 20 years. Basically 486 years before the birth of Christ to about 465 years before the birth of Christ. About a 20-year period. And when the writer wrote this under the inspiration of God, he was writing to a generation that probably knew little or nothing about Esther and Mordecai because memories are short. And after these two would have passed from the scene and Ahasuerus again, probably it wouldn't have been too long before they would have been forgotten. And he would be writing to, or to a generation that knew not Persia. And because Persia, in not too long a period of time, would be taken over by the Hellenists, by what we would know of as the Greek Empire, and a succession of Hellenistic reigns. And apart from the chronicles that would have been collecting dust, the chronicles of the Medes and the Persians, nobody really knew what had happened in Persia. And that goodness and that peace and that truth uh, that Mordecai had brought about in his administration it had all been disrupted, and Israel would be torn up once again. Israel would be under foreign influence again to the point that there would be another generation in which people would speak of peace, the Pax Romana, peace of Rome, 30 B.C. to 180 A.D. roughly. But it wasn't a time of peace. The Roman Empire of the first century is striking it's striking to read the parallels between Rome, the empire of the first century, and today. Utterly striking. Homosexual marriage, folks, is not something new. It was practiced in the first century. The first century had its equivalent of pride months which really were degrading months. So, so nothing new under the sun. It was a piece of Rome, not really. It was, there was an external piece, to be sure. But Rome was very corrupt. And it was, even as Persia here was beginning to decay, Rome was beginning to decay. It's a fascinating study, Rome of the first century. And brothers and sisters, if there's one big lesson about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the world. It's that external things never solve internal things. An external priesthood, an external kingship, external warfare, external prosperity, it never really, never really corrects internal things. And that's, and, and you see that, I hope you see that today. A sex change operation, it's not going to change the heart, folks. And people are realizing, I mean, there's one example. There's a need as you come to the end of Esther and the end of the Old Testament. Frankly, as you got done a day looking at the world, there's a need of some power, some personal power, and some really, really, really powerful personal power that will break through the surface and get to the soul. Are you aware of that? See, that's the dead-end street of the world. 
And it's really where you end up at the end of the Old Testament. If Ecclesiastes is in fact the last book of the Old Testament that was written, and you can make the case for that, you can understand why the writer would end that reflection on even the best of wisdom by saying, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Well, that brings us to the last word, okay, and that's the really encouraging one. Remember, telescope, right? And the writer of, of Esther is, is looking out over the, the chasm, the intertestamental period of about 425 years, and, and he sees the landscape and, and, and even some of the little villages, even some of the people that are on the other side of that chasm in what we call the New Testament period. And, and what would be in that picture of what he would see? Well, <clears throat> that area is, and that time is under the reign of another Ahasuerus. His name is Caesar Augustus, the revered one who actually was called Dominus Edeus, Lord and God, Caesar Augustus. And to show you that the more things change, the more they remain the same, even as you remember Ahasuerus for this act that is mentioned in chapter 10, how do you remember Caesar Augustus? Luke chapter 2, in the time of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed. The more, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And in, in that landscape, if you could get close enough to it in the first century, there's, there's a common woman and a common man, not of the priesthood, not of the kingship, not, not of the prophetic office, a common man and a common woman who are consecrated to God. And in their consecration to God, God through them brings one greater than Mordecai, the Jew. It's Jesus, the Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. And what you see in shadowy form in Mordecai, you see in blessed fullness in Jesus. Thank God he doesn't bow down to his enemies. He stands up before the devil he stands up before all the assaults of illnesses and death and opposition in every way. He is perfectly obedient. And he, in that way, as Mordecai was opposed, is opposed, but interestingly, not by the enemies of the Jews. He's opposed by the Jews. He's opposed by his own people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And this is for another day, and a lot of discussion, and a lot of tears. But brothers and sisters, the most painful battles God's people have are not usually with the world. They're usually within the camp of the professed believers in Christ, Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and Esau, and on and on. It's a very interesting dynamic. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. Yes, he came to bring peace. But he said, I came to bring a sword. There's both together. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. Hard lesson, but a real lesson. Because, folks, the Lord doesn't work first through bloodlines. He doesn't work first through ethnic lines. He doesn't work by race. He works by grace. And grace cuts across things. Anyway, Jesus is opposed by his own people. The great Mordecai is. And then there's the greatest reversal of all. We learn the word climax. Not the end. Climax is the very high point at which everything changes. The climax of human history is the taking of Haman's gallows, which was really 
a place where someone was impaled, crucified. And it puts it on that other shore. And Jesus is there. The great Mordecai is there. And in the great reversal of human history, punishment that would fall on you falls on him. Defeat that the devil thinks he has of Jesus is defeat that is defeat of the devil himself. He is defanged. He can no longer accuse or indict or destroy or murder because Christ conquers death on the cross. And even the world itself with its influences that brought Christ to the cross is conquered by that one who was not conquered by the world. Glorious, glorious reversal in the cross. We need to revel in that. It's God's great disarmament program. Revel in the cross and what it is. And then there's the universal demonstration of that reversal. Don't stop with the cross. Easter and the grave is opened up and ascension day and before all who see him Jesus is ascended up into heaven and he reigns from heaven and here's what's great he's not second in command he's now the one with all authority in heaven and on earth greater than Joseph greater than Daniel greater than Mordecai and poor him that that is embedded in the Old Testament that that battle where the Lord will honor his name and protect his people, that's carried out now by the Holy Spirit using the word of God as you go into the world, not not with a holy war that physically executes people. God, bring that far from us. But it says to people, here is the king who reigns in goodness and truth and peace, and blessed welfare. Come to him. Surrender to him. And in him you are fully, fully blessed. See, that, that, that's, the, that's what the writer is looking forward to. Wistful, because it never really is accomplished in the Old Testament, but it would be accomplished in the New, in which, by the Holy Spirit, we go beyond the surface and we get to the soul, people are born again by sovereign grace. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And just to add one more thing to it, it's not just the Israel. It's the Gentiles and Jews. Paul says a remarkable statement. Christ came by the Spirit, and he preached shalom, as Mordecai did. He preached shalom to those who were near, to the Jews, and to you who are far off, glorious fulfillment of what is given in these threads, right, in the book of Esther. Well, let's wrap it up, not just with last words, which are given here, and the last word, but how about the last day? Because all of these threads, this tapestry, is designed to be displayed perfectly at the last day, when all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. And the holy war that you read about in Revelation 19, at the, at the end of the age, there's an apostasy. There has been a, a prevailing profession of, of Christianity around the world. You can't have an apostasy, a falling away from it, if there's not a prevailing profession. of. But there's a falling away. There's an assault on the Lord's people, not unlike the fact that there would be an assault on the Lord's people by decree in the book of Esther. But the Lord comes, and the Lord vanquishes those enemies, and there is a public day of judgment and acquittal in which Purim will be fulfilled. What's Purim about? Again, chapter 9 and verse 22 Purim is about the Israelites gathering, getting relief, rest from their enemies. Isn't that what the last day is about? God takes death and hell and the devil and his angels in which the spiritual 
and the physical are united. They're cast into hell. They're removed far away, if you will. That's Jesus blotting out the memory of the Amalekites perfectly. And he brings in this Purim where you can finally say, rest. (laughs) Rest from the world. Rest from the devil. Rest from my own sin. And in that rest, you go from sorrow to gladness, from mourning into a holiday. What does God say? No more mourning. No more tears. No more death. The former things will have passed away. Those still existed in Esther. They won't at the last day. In days of feasting and gladness, and all will be a world of love of the giving of oneself to others forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why the the writer of Esther would be wistful. He didn't see it in his day. But at the last day, you will see Purim fulfilled. And that will all be under the reign of one infinitely greater than Ahasuerus. That's another theme in Esther, counterfeits. So here's the reality. One infinitely greater than Ahasuerus. And what does he do? He takes, he takes his redeemed bride, his Esther, to be his queen forever and ever. And he doesn't offer her half of his kingdom. He gives all of it to her forever and ever. So, so wonderful a story. And, and unlike King Ahasuerus, Jesus doesn't hold out the golden scepter and possibly grant you permission to approach him. Jesus holds out his arms and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Esther is a a wonderful, wonderful book. And what Esther points forward to in the New Covenant is even more wonderful. But they both pale in comparison to the last day in which these thread themes in Esther become the full picture of new heavens and new earth. And you'll be there if you just entrust yourself to the great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we see why we call this message Esther, the end, question mark. Uh, Because, our Lord, it is really not the end. It's pointing us forward to the end, to the real end. Thank you that when Jesus, when Jesus, he gave us the model for preaching on Esther. He opened up in all of the scriptures, including Esther, the things concerning himself And we thank you that we could learn some of those things today. And now, our God, don't make this a head trip for us. Make it a heart trip for us. As we unite, as we learned last week, we unite our story with Christ. As it were, we become Esther, identifying ourselves with King Jesus and identifying ourselves with your people, Lord, make us all to be like that because every, every other way is utterly a dead-end street. And we pray that in that magnificent world that we know of as salvation, that we know of as the kingdom of God, that we know of as deliverance from sin and death, may we revel that we have everlasting life and joy and peace in Christ. And may we revel knowing that those who believe in him will never be disappointed. Amen.